Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Good evening, Missoula. You are on the Trail Less Traveled, recorded here on location in the mountains of Missoula, Montana. And I am sitting here with the first man who was ever featured on the Trail Less Traveled seven years ago. His name is Andy Ambling, and... If you know Andy, then you know that Andy's heart is solid gold. He is a guide's guide. He grew up here in the Bitterroot Valley in Hamilton, Montana. And he is a friendly face up at Snowball from time to time. He also guides full-time on the Middle Fork of the Salmon in Idaho, as well as the Colorado River, which runs through the Grand Canyon. Andy is my best friend, and I'm honored to have him back in the studio after an epic adventure on the Blue Nile. Just a few months ago, Andy found himself running the Blue Nile in Ethiopia one and a half times, and tonight he's going to share the tale. In New Zealand, we call it spinning a yarn. So I'm going to spin a yarn with Andy. Andy, thank you so much for sitting with me here tonight, drinking cold smoke on this lovely Tuesday evening. Thank you for having me, Mandela. It's good to be back seven years later. That's right. We had you on the show for the first episode. I believe so. It's been a long time. It has. You've done a lot since then. So have you. I'm grateful that a lot of those adventures were together because we sometimes are lucky and get to be on the same trip. That's Colorado. right. Exactly. And then you found yourself back in Mother Africa recently. I did. But before we go to Africa, for those listening who don't know Mr. Ambling, Andy, can you tell us a wee bit about where you grew up and how adventure was part of your childhood? Well, I grew up in Hamilton, Montana, just a mere 45 miles south of Missoula, and I had a great childhood, no complaints there. My mom took pains to get my sister and I outside whenever she could, started skiing from a young age. We lived a 10-minute walk from the Bitterroot River, summertime, that's really all I remember is going and playing in the river and catching frogs and looking for snakes and walking upstream and finding logs that a beaver had felled and dragging them over to the river and floating them down to the swimming hole. My mom sent me off into the Bitterroots whenever she could, usually alone with my dog, and just told me to come back in a couple days and she'd meet me at the trailhead. So I started hiking from a young age and spent a lot of time in the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness but I'd never started rafting until I was 16. Really had never done it before, just intertubed on the Bitterroot and whatnot. And I just happened to be asked by a friend's dad, Joel Bender, to come do a training trip on the Middle Fork of the Salmon because his best friend owned a company down there. And so we went down. It was an early June trip. And I guess I did okay. I loved it. It was cold at times as a Middle Fork salmon June can be. And so the next couple of years, I went back a couple trips 
those summers before I was 18 and just did training trips with Idaho Wilderness Company. And then the summer I turned 18, I was guiding. So I was just doing the math with a buddy earlier today, actually. This is my 12th season as a river guide. Makes me feel old. <laughs> so yeah, I've been on the Middle Fork since then, since I was 18. And eventually didn't move on, but moved around to other rivers. And so now I mainly do the Middle Fork of the Salmon in the middle of summer, the Selway for a couple trips with Soar Northwest, and then the Grand Canyon with you down at Outdoors Unlimited. Andy, what can I say? You are a guide's guide. All right, let's fast forward. You flew to Ethiopia. So we took off the river at 8 a.m. We were driving because the Hualapai wanted their put-in. And we barely got out of there before they needed their space. Drove back to Flagstaff, derigged the trip for two hours. I had about two hours of myself time to repack because I was trying to use all the same river gear and do some laundry. And then my good friend Orea drove me to the airport in Flagstaff, and I flew away about 6 o'clock that evening. It was a very quick turnaround. And I had 50 pounds of raft gear in one arm and 50 pounds of frame equipment for a raft in the other hand and a backpack, and that was it. And so I flew from Flagstaff to Phoenix to L.A., had a little tiny layover in L.A. when I had to get to International and then got on the plane, and it was, I think, a 36-hour flight over to Ethiopia via Dublin for an hour. But they didn't let us off the plane, so I couldn't get a Guinness. And I landed in Addis Ababa at 5 a.m. had to run around the airport and find domestic flights, which are in a different building. They actually had good Wi-Fi, so I was able to tell my mom I was at least safe on the ground. And then I took a little puddle jumper flight from Addis Ababa to Bahar Dar. Got there about nine in the morning, local time, and made my way to the hotel where we were all staging. And at this point, I knew one person on the trip, Tony Stearns, who is a doctor in the Marianas Islands. And he had been a baggage boater on one of our trips on the Grand Canyon. And he was the one that told me about this whole Blue Nile expedition and invited me and told me I should come and I uh, met everybody else going on the trip, the organizer, Rocky Contos, and then our trip leader, if you will, you know, lead guide, Alex Aitken, who was a very amazing boatman, probably the best I've ever met. You are on the trail less traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure series. We are speaking with Andy Ambelang, a living legend and local here in Missoula, Montana. Andy can you please paint the picture for us of Ethiopia and this river that you floated down, that you walked around, that you enjoyed, and which challenged you at times? The Blue Nile. Why is it yes. relevant as well? Uh, the Blue Nile is very relevant right now because it is in the very final stages of being dammed, uh, right down there on the Ethiopia and Sudan border. And so we were most likely one of the last river trips to see the entire river in its free-flowing state through Ethiopia. And as we finished our journey, you could see the effects of the deforestation all the way up to the high water mark where the dam will eventually flood for the last probably 60 to 100 kilometers. It was pretty 
apparent in places, you know, how much they'd clear-cut everything where the reservoir was going to be. But moving back, Addis Ababa is in the central highlands of Ethiopia. It's this huge city, very beautiful in its own way, as cities can be. And I didn't spend too much time there, especially not in the beginning, only an hour, and then between the trips, about two weeks. But from Addis Ababa, which is in central Ethiopia, which is in northern Africa, you head north, and by plane, it's about an hour to Bahardar. By road, it is 13, 14 hours of driving through very interesting roads, even by Montana standards. We had to deal with potholes, sinkholes, riots. We didn't have the most amazing rigs all the time. Sometimes we got to use the African land cruisers, which were pretty awesome. Mostly because we were carrying a lot of different people, we had these minibuses, which were form of Toyota Hiace. Pretty new. Lifted. Uh, no, they weren't lifted. They should have been. We definitely... I have some great pictures of some going in very interesting places. After our first trip, we ended up taking the long route to avoid a riot that was going on for political reasons, which ended up taking us, I think, 36 hours in this minibus to drive from Asosa all the way back to Addis Ababa. It was a long drive, and we spent over five hours of that going about five miles an hour on this horribly rocky, rutted dirt road, if you could call it. But it was an adventure. The best rig we had was this old Mitsubishi moving truck, if you will, just a flatbed with welded gates all the way up, six feet tall, and this huge metal bumper down the middle that allowed you to make a tarp secured like an A-frame cabin over all the gear, and we had that entire thing, probably 18 feet long, just bed length, uh, loaded with all the rafts and gear and coolers. And and at that time, it was just Alex and his wife, Ceci, and myself, and then our two security guards, Tashome and Samanyo, with their AK-47s. And we all sat huddled in there for about seven hours on the drive from the takeout back to Asosa, and just you know seeing the people and waving when they caught sight of us you know that just we were a curiosity and as the the sun went down it got very cold and so we kind of pulled this tarp out from behind us and covered the whole group with this huge tarpaulin you know that was meant to cover the whole truck and huddled there for about an hour as we were driving down through the african night and on our way into azoza where hopefully we had at least some sort of bed for us. So that was probably the best rig that we got to see in Ethiopia. Andy, what did Africa smell like? Africa smells so distinct. Even when it's not raining, it kind of smells like rain. If you're from Montana, you know, we don't have that certain rain smell, but it can... It smells organic and earthy, and it was really interesting. We actually had a bunch of our group on the second trip, you know, in three words, describe what Africa is to you or what the trip was to you, and I think my words were beautiful, organic, and intense. You know, some people, their words were 
garbage and garbage. people that had never been there before only saw the garbage in the streets or the the poorness. Mm -hmm. But I guess, I don't know, this was only my second time back in Africa, but yeah, it was just beautiful and life is so vibrant and real. And oh, I have to tell you about the coffee. Oh, yeah. So Ethiopia was the birthplace of coffee. And so when we were on the river, we had this, you know, pre-ground because you couldn't be grinding coffee every morning, Tomoka coffee, which was supposedly the first coffee shop in Addis Ababa. It was so good. And they had this very old coffee shop a little ways from the hotel where we were staging out of. And most mornings, you couldn't get coffee right at the hotel. So you had to go a couple blocks away to it was this Swedish coffee shop in Addis Ababa. It was hilarious. And they had really good coffee, very, very dark, bitter, kind of more of an Americano style. But in Ethiopia, Ethiopia, the proper way to brew coffee and have coffee with your friends or your acquaintances is you brew it in what's called a buna, which is this ceramic vessel. And you use the same grounds for each set of coffee. And so the first coffee that you pour after you've made it in this buna is very, very dark and bitter and really intense. And, you know, they pour everyone just one tiny little teacup worth of coffee. And usually you have some bread with it. And usually the coffee ceremony, it's supposed to be relaxing. And so they'll often throw out green grasses all over the ground to make you feel relaxed. And they'll throw out popcorn on the ground to make it look like snow. So you're, it's supposed to be mimicking this super you know, natural setting. And you're supposed to relax and just hang out and have these three cups of coffee. And it's all brewed in one buna. And so the first one is really intense. And then the second one is kind of, you know, what I would consider the perfect cup of coffee in America. Just nice and easy and, you know, very good. And then they pour a little more water on to the same grounds in this buna. And so the third one is very weak. And that's the coffee ceremony. And I hadn't really experienced this. And then I went to find the local laundry place with Alex and Ceci and... We ended up sitting there for probably two hours having this coffee ceremony with this whole family and their whole business is just doing laundry for their section of Addis Ababa. And so there's just walking to find the place and you know you're getting close because there's laundry lines strung out over all these alleys. And you see, you know, your own pair of shorts hanging out to dry or whatever. You're like, okay, we're getting close. And this whole family was just wonderful. It was a, you know, a brother and sister that were kind of running the business and then kids from various other brothers and sisters and this whole huge family and they introduced all their kids to us and they were all so curious to come in and say hi and practice their English and teach us some Amharic which is the main language in Ethiopia. Ethiopia has something like 57 languages maybe even more but Amharic is pretty well spoken and we were concerned on the river about whether we or not we'd be able to communicate with certain tribes along the ways because there are so many different dialects and languages along the Blue Nile. But it turned out that even in regions where they mainly spoke Oromic or it was very tribal and it was the Gamuz people, even some of the elders you know, would speak Amharic and so our translator could talk to the locals and you know, let them know what we were doing and 
I was just amazed at how curious everyone was and no one was ever hostile and never felt unsafe. Everyone was just really curious about what we were doing and who we were. And, you know, I got to meet these just beautiful, curious people that had never seen, you know, someone with white skin before. And, you know, they were just so intrigued just to shake my hand or, you know, look me in the eye and say hello. It was beautiful. It was so amazing. That is the voice of Mr. Andy Ambelang, based here in Missoula, Montana. Grew up in the Bitterroot Valley. And Andy is telling us tonight about the one and a half expeditions that Andy recently completed on the Blue Nile, which flows in Ethiopia. When we come back, we're going to learn more about the Blue Nile. But now, Andy, are you prepared for this next question? Because, my brother, I know you're into music, and it's now time for a song. So is there a song that reminds you of anything pertinent to what you've been talking about for the last 19 minutes? Well, there was a point (laughs) on the very last day of the first expedition when we were rowing along, we had about... 40 kilometers to cover until we were supposed to reach the bridge that was our takeout. And you could just see this huge African wall of rain just downriver. And I'm looking at it and I'm rowing and it's a true wall of rain. And we're getting closer and closer and you're just approaching it. And I'm just looking at that line, and there was nothing you could do. I'd already lost my raincoat to a local some 400 kilometers upstream. So I simply put on my hat and bent my head and kept rowing. And we entered the wall of rain, and for the next hour, it rained. And then just as soon as it had started, it stopped. And just by chance, I was listening to the iPod that day, because we had a big day of rowing, and somewhere in that hour... Rolling Stones, Gimme Shelter, came on, and it was very apropos. The Trail Less Travel podcast is sponsored by Karuna Clothing. Sewn with love and laughter, Karuna Clothing is a handcrafted from natural fabrics which soften as they age. They design clothing lines to fit the moods of places which have inspired them. Designed simply and using the best fabrics, Karuna Clothing creates their own unique colours. Strong, well-sewn, small batch, unique product lines which are simply beautiful. Handmade in Missoula, Montana, all of Karuna Clothing is sewn and dyed in the US and all workers are paid good living wages. www.karunaclothing.com That's K-A-R-U-N-A Clothing.com. Hey, Missoula, this is Mandela. With me is my friend Andy Ambelang. Andy grew up in the Bitter in Hamilton. And I'd like for you now, Andy, to please paint for us the picture of what it's like to go down the Blue Nile in Africa. The Blue Nile in Africa is... Really, you know, 95 to 99% of it is really darn flat. It's like running the Mississippi. Or it's like (laughs) running down the Clark Fork through Missoula. 
without Brennan's wave in there. It's very, very flat. And then it's punctuated by severe rapids. The first 40 kilometers of the river are where most of those rapids are. So we got to the put-in late September, and we spent three days there because, of course, the stove that came from the USA couldn't work with the regulators that had to fit on the propane tanks that were in Ethiopia. So we had to spend two days finding a stove so we could cook dinner and whatnot. But anyways, you start off and right out of the gate from where we put in, we were about 10 kilometers below the weir, which comes out of Lake Tana. And right out of the gate, you're in pretty fun class three, class four, and then it's flat for a few kilometers. We had a few little rapids our first two days, one called Zamocha, which was just beautiful basalt rocks and kind of creek boaty lines, reminiscent of the Middle Fork of the Salmon or, you know, upper Blackfoot River. And then you get down to the gauntlet. And the gauntlet is your first class five rapid. We portaged it on both expeditions. Well, it wasn't a true portage. A true portage is where you take absolutely everything out of the river, fully derig the boats, and walk it along the shore. In the gauntlet rapid, we did kind of a half portage. We did what we called ghost boating. So we took out all of our personal gear from the rafts, all the duffel bags, anything important like the water filter and this first aid kit, stuff like that. But you left the boxes and coolers and strapped everything down super tight, brought the oars in and strapped those down so that the raft is kind of streamlined. And a team of a couple people pushes the boats off at the top of the rapid, and the boats just bounce through all the way down. It's about 100 yards. And then you pick them up at the bottom. That's the plan anyways. And it was interesting. So the gauntlet is just this beautiful basalt canyon. You're going through all this farmland and whatnot in Ethiopia, and suddenly the river just drops into this 50-meter deep canyon. You're up above that canyon, and you're in the farmland, and everything's, you know, seems fine. But down low, it's just this crazy basalt canyon. All of the rocks are overhanging and undercut, which is very dangerous if you're in a raft. And so we pushed all the boats through, and myself and Alex were in charge of standing on this rock in the hot sun at the base of the Gauntlet Rapid and picking up the boats as they came downstream. And all but one of them were upright, and so you just had to kind of jump into the river, swim over to the boat, climb in, and then we paddled it into this eddy down below. And that took, that was two days of finagling for six boats. But, you know, Gauntlet went pretty well. Got back in, went downstream, and we come to the crux, which five years before or eight years before, that is where the Richard Bangs expedition had a death. So we were pretty nervous about that rapid. At our water levels, which I think were lower than that expedition had, the crux wasn't that big of a deal. At a slightly higher water level, during the rainy season, you could have fluctuations of up to two meters in one day. And so right after we had run the gauntlet, several of us walked down to scout the crux, and it was it was unrunnable. It was just insane. We were looking from up above, you know, maybe 50 meters above the water, and it was just this huge standing wave. There was no way through, and it was really scary looking. 
And we went back to camp with that information, and everybody was a little put off. And then the next morning, you know, we still had to continue downriver. There was no way out. But the water had dropped enough that the crux was really no big deal. That standing wave had moved over to river right, and there was a slot downriver left, and we were able to make it through that area of the river just fine. After that, we had a really tiny postage stamp beach of a camp and geared up for our next rapid, which came to be known as Blackwall Cavern. And if you've ever been down the Grand Canyon in the Colorado, kind of like Redwall Cavern in terms of there's this huge cave on river left, uh, but this one's all made out of basalt and it's beautiful. There's a little creek running through the entire cave because the walls of the cave itself are weeping from about 10 feet up. And you know it's like the weeping wall up in Glacier, but it's this entire cave worth and that forms a creek that runs around. But that's pretty much inaccessible unless you're over on river left, which you don't really want to be unless things go wrong, which happened on our second expedition. But the first expedition, we get to Blackwall Cavern and it took us an entire day to portage one raft. It was probably just a couple hundred yards, but just a boulder field on river right. Um, you pulled into this eddy, tied up the boats, and you know we definitely wasted a lot of time scouting and trying to figure things out. We tried to line the first raft down into a nicer eddy about halfway through the rapid, and we ended up flipping that raft while it was on line just on an eddy line, you know, just coming around a rock. The water was so powerful and it caught the right way and flipped it just like that. CFS, there's probably two, 3,000, maybe four. There's not that much water at that point, but it's just decent gradient and all basalt rocks and whatnot. It's a crazy rapid. It's kind of in three sections. The first one, mostly river right, huge wave hole that you could theoretically avoid river left if you're trying to run it. And then you'd have to go out and around a rock. And then the second kind of middle portion of the rapid is just this crazy boulder garden, which on the first expedition at higher water level was mostly holes and waves, very hard to run through. On the second expedition was actual rocks and still some holes, but pretty much boulder garden, very large boulders, you know, the size of a large FedEx van. And then the very last portion of the rapid is this full-on river-wide hole much like the ledge hole in lava on the Grand Canyon, but completely river-wide. That did not look very fun. So in this case, because it was a river-wide hole, all the water is going over some sort of ledge underwater, some sort of rock that the water drops down, and then the water begins to recirculate on itself. And things like boats or people can be kept in this hole as the water is recirculating as it drops off from its higher point and goes down over this ledge and then recirculates. If you're just joining us, you are listening to The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure series. And the voice that you're hearing is the voice of my dear friend, Mr. Andy Ambling. We are within the first 40 kilometers of the Blue Nile in East Africa. So continuing on through Blackwall Cavern Rapid, we spent that first day lining and portaging one raft out of six through this entire rapid. I was pretty darn sick that day, so I made it till about lunchtime and then passed out for two hours on a pile of gear. Meanwhile, 
the rest of our crew was setting up a long line around a cliff at the base of the rapid so that we could move people and gear to a semi-suitable bivy campsite down around the corner. And eventually we became benighted with only one raft down at the base of the rapid. And we all went to bed. No one was very happy. It was a horrible campsite. We only had one raft there. We didn't eat very much that night. And in the middle of the night, it began raining. And the river rose approximately two meters, which is over six feet, where we were camped in this gorge with five boats tied off upstream somewhere. And about 3.50, 3.45 in the morning, I woke up to a gunshot. And at first I thought someone was attacking us. I was still sleeping. And I crept out of my tent and looked around, tried to figure out what was going on. And I kept hearing this very rhythmic call from upstream. And eventually I realized it was our security guard that we'd hired to show me. And we'd left him upstream around the corner of this cliff to take care of the boats for the night. And I'd taken him some dinner the night before, and he was super set there. And he's a tough guy, but then I realized the river was up, and the rest of our crew was getting up, and we realized we couldn't do anything until it was daylight. The river was too high. We couldn't make it back upstream. But something was obviously wrong, and Toshome was yelling for us, and he was the one that had shot the rifle to alert us. So we waited for about two hours until it got light, in that two hours, Toshome had taken it upon himself to hike up and over the gorge and come down a goat trail to find us. And through our translator, Barraquette, he informed us that two of the boats had come completely loose and been washed downstream to who knows where. Two other boats had come loose and been washed into the very middle of the rapid. And it sounded like he had managed to tie them up in the middle of the rapid and one boat was left upstream. And so that was our morning. We had one boat with us. There was one boat left still tied up, two boats in the middle of the rapid, and two boats were gone. The organizer of the trip, Rocky, decided to take his good friend Tom, and they kayaked away to go find the two boats that were missing. And meanwhile, about five of us hiked up and over the top of the gorge and found the two boats that were still there in the middle of the rapid, plus the one boat that was still in its original place, and spent that entire day portaging those three boats through the rest of Blackwall Cavern, and made it down to camp, moved about 200 yards downstream to a slightly more suitable beach, which happened to have a crocodile in its eddy, so we named it Baby Crocodile Beach. And that was camp. That was probably our roughest point when we realized that we'd lost two boats, one that had most of all the dinner, the other one had a lot of the lunch and half the kitchen. And so for the next five days, we were rationing food a lot. You know, I guess the term is racing for your dinner. We were trying to make it downstream as quickly as possible, as safely as possible, so that we could resupply at the next bridge, which was the Murto Bridge. 
which was at least 100 kilometers downstream. And we still had to get through the rest of the main rapids for those first two days. So we woke up early that next morning with a slightly smaller crew and paddled down through Zigzag Rapid, which is this beautiful gorge, not more than 10 to 20 feet wide for probably 200 feet. And you just get to dance back and forth between the walls and your raft and try not to touch any rocks. And then we had to pull in at Bad Seeds Rapid, which is another beautiful spot in all the basalt. We were able to do a sneak line downriver left, which involved some very interesting creek boat style runs with the rafts. Uh, But we made it through and got all the guests back in the boats and continued on downstream. So by creek boat lines, I mean that I was rowing and Alex and one of his good guides, Mikey, were paddling in the front. We had made all the guests walk around and we took each boat individually and we had to pull out from our eddy, make a huge ferry to the left where each time we almost got washed right around this main rock into the main current, but we managed to get left. Then it was pretty calm for 20, 30 feet and we're setting up. And then you just have to wedge your boat on this little five-foot waterfall, if you will. We had people standing right next to the boat talking to us and laughing. And we would wedge the boat and kind of shimmy down this little bouldery five-foot drop and then slam into a boulder right in front of us and work our way around that. And then we were in an eddy and it was all good. But we had to do that with the four rafts that we had left. So that took most of the afternoon and we were all pretty tired. After that, we had finally made it out of the upper gorge and, you know, we thought everything was pretty smooth sailing. A little segue is that one guest had decided to purchase a 16-foot-long papyrus canoe from one of the local tribes up on Lake Tana that would make these canoes, mainly for lake use. And he had it portaged in to a bridge about 80 kilometers downstream called the Second Portuguese Bridge, also known as the Broken Bridge, because it was this beautiful stone arch bridge built in the 18th century, I think, that had since been partially destroyed, so you couldn't actually cross the bridge. And we get there, and there's this papyrus canoe sitting on the bridge with a note on it saying that Don had missed us or thought he had missed us. So he'd hiked back out, and apparently he was sick and whatnot. And so we spent about half the day hiking up the hill to make a phone call to Don to figure out where he was and figure out what was going on with this papyrus canoe. And we ended up dragging the papyrus canoe downstream with us for another 100 kilometers to the next bridge where Don finally met us, and he was a wonderful guy. But for those five days, we were running out of food. And even though we'd made it through the most challenging rapids of the trip in those first 40 kilometers, we didn't have much food left. And it was kind of funny because not all the participants on the trip knew that. Even though some days at lunch, I would have to tell people, okay, you get two crackers, two scoops of hummus out of this can, and five potato chips. That's your lunch for the next three days. We bought a goat in that time to eat for dinner. Definitely lost some weight. But in the end, it was a really amazing experience, you know, seeing all these people that, you know, we didn't know each other to start with. 
and everyone had to go through a pretty good bit of hardship, but at the end we conquered it, and it was amazing. It was a great feeling, and it was wonderful to see the group as a whole, you know, all 20 people see what they could do, and it really brought everyone together for those five days, and so that kind of set the tone for the rest of the trip. You know, we still had 400 kilometers to go downstream in the next couple weeks, and it made it a lot easier to do that. Downstream today is the Blue Nile, and we are with Andy Ambling, who is a native to the Bitterroot Valley and now Missoula, Montana. Andy's sitting across from me this evening, drinking a cold smoke and looking river ready, as always, as well. When we come back, we're going to find out a little bit about Andy's second expedition on the Blue Nile, and he saved a life. You are on the trail less traveled, and it's time for a song. Andy, you know how it works. Let's hear a song, my brother. You have great taste in music. So driving all over Ethiopia and just seeing how their government is coming into its own, if you will, and becoming a first world company, trying to be, you know, the best airline in Africa and whatnot. Neil Young's After the Gold Rush has really been sticking with me from that trip. Tonight we are in the studio with the first man that I ever interviewed on the trail as traveled seven years ago. His name is Andy Ambelang, and Andy has been spending the last 12 seasons guiding whitewater expeditions on the Middle Fork of the Salmon, the Selway, the Colorado River, and most recently the Blue Nile in Africa. Andy, I'd like to talk to you about the wildlife in Africa, particularly crocodiles. Well, on the Blue Nile, you run into the Nile crocodile, which is probably the most well-known crocodile in the world. Probably 95% of the time, they're scared of you, and life is good. You know, they just go underwater, and everything's just fine. The crocodile has a nickname up in the northern part of Ethiopia. That nickname is Hagapus, which translates to poopy face. (laughs) And so oftentimes our translator, Barraquette, who was riding on my boat almost every day, would be taunting the crocodiles and calling them hagapus, hagapus. But that other 5% of the time, it's not so easy. Crocodiles, as we learned, are very territorial, and they also have tunnel vision. And so although we had six rafts, and when we were in you know, main crocodile territory, we tried to stay pretty close together, once the crocodile zeroes in on a certain raft, that's the one it's thinking about. You can have another raft five feet behind that crocodile, but if it's chasing the one in front, that's the only one it cares about. It's very tunnel visioned. So we had some close calls there. We had, usually with the first raft, would be chased by these crocodiles, mainly in the Black Gorge section, which was lower down, probably in the last third of the river. And these territorial crocodiles would chase your raft for sometimes a couple hundred yards. 
which could be very disconcerting. The worst encounter I had, I was running sweep most of the time. Sweep refers to the very last raft out of the six. And we were in the Black Gorge, and this tributary came in. It wasn't much bigger than Rattlesnake Creek coming in on the Clark Fork. Just up there on the creek, I see this big crocodile, and he's just kind of hanging out. And then all of a sudden, he swings his head around, and he sees me, and I'm the last raft. And now it's a race. And I'm watching him, and he just starts running down the sand, jumps in the creek, He's swimming down the creek all the while. I'm standing up. I'm pushing as hard as I can. He makes it out of the creek. He's in the main current. There's this little island of rock that he has to get up over. So he jumps up over that, and he's running across this island of rock. Then he jumps into the main current, and I'm pushing for all I'm worth. And I'm entering this little class three rapid. It's like I'm entering the little rapid there at Rattlesnake Creek where the university comes in and everything. It's nothing crazy, just some good waves. But at high water, it was decent. And luckily, I managed to push just past him, and he pulls in right behind me with his mouth open and continues to follow me through all these waves, through this little class three rapid. He's getting doused and going underwater at times, but he's still following me with his mouth open, and and I keep pushing, and I'm looking back. Later, we learned that the crocodiles are territorial, and so after a while... He just turned around, and at first I thought he'd just given up, but it was probably that was the end of his territory, and he didn't feel threatened anymore in his territory, so he let me go. Throughout that whole first expedition, uh, we didn't have any major issues with crocodiles, just little things like that where they were probably just more curious and you know asserting their dominance over their territory. And in the second expedition, which I did the first half of before I had to leave to catch my flight, the water was a lot lower. It wasn't rainy season anymore. Never rained, actually. And so because of that, the concentration of crocodiles within the amount of available water in the river was much greater. So we saw a lot more. So there were certain days where you'd be going downstream, and one instance we wanted to pull in and have lunch at the Gemma River, and eight crocodiles... <laughs> pulled in off the banks as we're going down this little side channel to pull in. And, you know, we were the first boat. Life was good. But then next boat's coming in, and Sam Orkin is paddling down. He was in a kayak, and he's pulling in and taking off his skirt as fast as he can and telling me that there's a crocodile chasing his dad in the raft. And I look back, and sure enough, there's this crocodile mouth open, you know, 10 feet behind his dad's raft just cruising. So we started throwing rocks at it, and we had a term. You have you have to carry croc rocks in your boat. They're little, you know, baseball-sized rocks you can easily throw at a crocodile if it's really getting close, kind of scaring you. But anyways, that was the crocodiles. Apparently, later on in that second expedition, one crocodile actually did bump a kayak and you know, kind of nose it to see what it was all about. That was kind of the worst that we ever saw there. And then the one other thing would be hippopotamuses or hippopotami. On our first trip, we didn't have too many issues because the water was pretty high, and so they were all off on the sides, but just amazing creatures, you know, river cows, if you will. But they can be dangerous. We had a couple camps where there were hippo tracks in the camp, and we ended up having to camp there, and you were definitely nervous going to sleep at night whether a hippo was going to walk around. 
But apparently, hippos will actually avoid tents in the night, and they'll do a pretty good job. So as long as you don't get out of the tent and scare them, a hippo can walk right past you, and you'll be just fine if you're sleeping in your tent. If you just tuned in, you're listening to The Trail Less Traveled, and the voice that you're hearing is the voice of an amazing locally-based storyteller and adventurer by the name of Andy Embling. Andy was telling us about the wildlife that he encountered just a few months ago on the Blue Nile. The Blue Nile is soon to be completely dammed, so Andy's one of the last people to experience the whitewater and the ecosystems of that river. Andy, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on The Trail Less Traveled. Thank you, Mandela. It's been a pleasure. I wish you the very best in your upcoming season on the Colorado River, the Middle Fork of the Salmon, and the Selway. Thank you. I would like to remind listeners about traveling. Traveling to places that other people say are too dangerous to go to. I'm sure you had a handful of people tell you not to go to Africa because it was dangerous. But I find that a lot of the people who tell us not to go places have never been there themselves. So can you just remind us of Africa and travel and why it's important to see other cultures? Well, I would say I definitely encountered a fair amount of people saying I shouldn't go. And yes, you always have to look at the risk and minimize it as much as you can because you always have to come home and see the people that you love. But on the same token, I do believe that a lot of the risks are overblown. Ethiopia, for instance, had a State Department warning out for traveling there for the last two or three years, and that was recently lifted. But I asked you know, one of our local guides about that, and he just started laughing, and he explained his side of it as a local. And a lot of it was just completely unfounded and just government interference. And so I think... You know, you always have to keep a level head, one. But two, you have to do your own research and not be so concerned with the big things in the news or maybe there was a news story from a year ago about a riot or whatnot that an American or some foreign national got involved in. But in the grand scheme of things, in Ethiopia at least, even though there were riots that we had to deal with and avoid, those people were not concerned about some random American or European or any other foreign national in their country. They were concerned about what their government was or was not doing for them. And so they didn't care whether we were trying to pass by or walk by. It didn't matter. Andy, you have been all over the world. Why do you call Missoula, Montana home? Well, the locals already know this because Missoula is pretty darn amazing. I grew up a little bit south, and I always thought that I would leave, but I realized that it's, it's a hard place to beat. And for me, it's a great base camp and such a wonderful place to live with my good friends and family. Andy, let's end this program with three slices of advice that you can share with a listener, perhaps pertaining to Africa or just to life in general? Well, if we're talking travel advice in Africa, I would say sign up to get your shots early <laughs> because in Missoula, there's only one place to get those and it can be quite hard to get at the last minute. Two, travel with an open mind and a big smile on your face 
And with those two things, most things will usually work out in your favor. Most people are just curious and happy to meet you and just see what you're all about and just talk to you, you know, the world over. Everyone's just another human being and we're all curious about different people and cultures and when it all comes down to it, everybody likes to get along and share a cup of coffee. Three, always take half the amount of clothes you think you need and twice the amount of money you think you need. A very good friend told me that quite a long time ago, and I'll never forget it. Beautiful. Andy, what song would you like to end your show with? Well, considering that my next plan for adventure involves driving an old Volkswagen microbus down to South America, I think we'd have to go with the Who's Magic Bus. Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to collecting sound effects and interviews from the most remote locations around the world. Subscribe to the free podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. And visit traillesstraveled.net to see pictures, archive previous episodes, or contact me. I'd like to thank my guest for this week, Andy Ambele. Andy was born and raised in Hamilton, Montana. And from a young age, he would solo hike with his dog in the Bitterroots. Andy started rafting when he was 16 and guiding on the middle fork of the salmon when he was 18. With 12 seasons under his belt, Andy now guides primarily on the Grand Canyon, Middle Fork, and Selway. In the fall of 2017, Andy completed one and a half expeditions of the Blue Nile in Ethiopia. The next adventure Andy has planned is to drive his 1967 split-window Volkswagen bus to South America. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Has Traveled, and my goal for this show is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Therefore, every week I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled in the mountains of Missoula, Montana, or on location around the world in order for me to find these adventurers and connect with them in their natural habitat. The Trail Less Traveled is the community's source for adventure information and inspiration, Sunday nights at 6. My adventure tip this week is to check your shoes before slipping them on when traveling in parts of the world where poisonous critters could crawl into your shoe for a wee nap. One time in Kenya, I was bitten by a large spider after forgetting to tap my shoes out before putting them on. Well, that's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please do something for Mother Earth and get out there and shred the gnar. Because, as you know, the gnar doesn't shred itself. <laughs>